0: I'd like to invite you to come on a brief imaginative journey with me to imagine and remember what it was like to be alive a hundred years ago. Why a hundred years? Well, it's a nice round number for one, Uh, but it's also a long time ago while still being within the living memory of a few people. From the most recent update I've seen, the world's current known oldest person is Kane Tanaka from Japan. She's 116 years old. She was born in 1903, so she was actually 16 in 1919, 100 years ago. Now, I don't know that it would always be equally fruitful to spend time looking back precisely a century ago for insights to our current present moment, but the year 1919, as many of you may may well know, was a landmark year in a lot of ways with haunting and powerful parallels to today. And if this sermon leaves any of you curious to learn more, the epic book that first made me aware of just how much happened a century ago is Anne Hagedorn's Savage Peace, Hope and Fear in America in 1919. And I think that alone starts to describe our current day, hope and fear. To help set the stage, I'd like to share with you a quote adapted and updated from a Roman Catholic bishop. These words about the value of taking periodically a long view has regularly come to mind as I've taken this increasingly deep dive into the world of a century ago, the world of 1919. This bishop wrote, it helps now and then to lean back and take the long view. The beloved community that we dream about, it's it's actually not only beyond our efforts, it's even beyond our imagination. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is the sacred work of so many laborers over time. All that happened and all the people that contributed to all that has happened and has been accomplished over the course of, for instance, this last century. Nothing we do individually is complete. No statement says all that could be said. No confession brings perfection. Those of you who have been to confession can probably say, Amen, that's correct, right? No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program can fully accomplish our congregation's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. It may be incomplete, but know that it is a beginning a step along the way and an opportunity for others to pick up the baton and carry the movement further. We may never see the end results. We are, in most cases, workers and not master builders. We are ministers and neighbors to each other, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own, and that is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day might grow. We water seeds, which we find already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, but there's actually a sense of liberation in realizing that it enables us to do something and to do it very well, the best that we can. In the great river of the universe and time, this quote about the value of pausing every once in a while to take the long view um, from my immediate struggles, whatever they are, it helps me put them in a larger context. It reminds me to focus on doing what I can to shape the piece of the puzzle of this mysterious existence in which we find ourselves as best I can. In that spirit, as we begin our brief journey through the year 1919, one of the striking resonances to our world today is that both then and now, there was a real longing in the country for a return to normalcy, a return to stability. Indeed, the very word normalcy, if you kind of trace its usage, it was actually beginning to really spike and to to gain some popularity really around 1919. And in 1919, you can find these examples of strict grammarians criticizing that word normalcy. That's a neologism, you know, we don't need that word. The thing is, it just made it more popular. In early 1919, people were longing for normalcy because World War I had recently ended a few months earlier on November 11th, Armistice Day, often poetically rendered as happening on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. Although peace had officially arrived, the impact of the war continued to reverberate. William Butler Yeats encapsulated this longing for normalcy in the opening line of his poem titled 1919. It went like this. Many ingenious lovely things are gone. How well that sentence resonates today. Many ingenious, lovely things are gone. I almost think of it as a much less sarcastic way of saying about the world, well, I guess we just can't have nice things, right? Yeats said it much better. In that same year of 1919, Yeats also penned perhaps one of his most famous poems, The Second Coming. Its opening stanza could also describe 2019 equally as much as his intended description of the world one century ago. He wrote, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Right, It's just flying off and loose. He said, things fall apart, the sinner cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere, the ceremony of innocence is drowned. And listen to this last line, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Here in the 21st century, there is some good news that over the past few years, we've seen increasing numbers of people getting in touch with their conviction, their focus, but there remains much work to do. For now, as we continue our visit to 1919, there's so much I'd like to tell you and only be able to share a few. I was surprised to learn, for example, I would never have guessed this, but the most popular Christmas gift in 1919 was the Ouija board. There's actually a whole lot to say about that in spiritualism around the time in which our universalist ancestors were heavily involved. Future Halloween sermon coming on that. Um, but in sports, it was the year, as some of you will know, that Babe Ruth was traded to the Yankees. In return, it was said that the Red Sox received the curse of the Bambino, causing them not to win another World Series until 2004, 85 years after 1919. 1919 was also the year that the requisite number of states ratified the 18th amendment prohibiting the manufacture, transportation, and sale of intoxicating liquors. That worked out great. Uh, Prohibition lasted for more than a decade until 1933 when it was repealed um, by the 21st amendment and prohibition itself, there's a whole lot to say about that, but it in and of itself is a fascinating reminder that massive social change can also be overturned, right? Which can cut both ways. Throughout most of 1919, there's also continued to be significant numbers of death from the Spanish flu. In total, during the course of the pandemic in the U.S., about 28 percent of the population was infected, uh, and about half a million to 675,000 people died. It was very, very serious. There's also a lot to discuss even about each of those few points, but so much happened in 1919 that I actually haven't even mentioned any of the four things that I really want us to briefly focus on. The first of those four angles that I want to say a little bit more about is transportation. When I was first orienting myself to the world of 1919, I was reminded of a piece of history that I had forgotten. That was the real controversy when President Woodrow Wilson chose to sail to Europe in person as part of the post-World War I peace conference. Before that trip, no U.S. president had ever left the country while in office, ever, ever. I was like, what? And that, I I mean, it makes more sense the more you think about it, but it's just so different than today. Part of the reason why, of course, is that reaching Europe in 1919 took two weeks each way by boat. While the Wright brothers had already achieved takeoff 16 years earlier in 1903, it would be another eight years before Charles Lindbergh would make the first transatlantic flight between two major city hubs in 1927. Worldwide travel today has just become so routine that looking back only 100 years can remind us of how much technology can change our lives in the world in a century. Similarly, seismic changes, um, also from climate change, again, I'll have to set that aside for right now, are likely in store for the years ahead of us. Looking back reminds us, though, that the way things are are not the way they will always be. The second angle I want to invite us to focus on is the change in uh, women's equality. It was 1919 when both houses of Congress passed the 19th Amendment. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged uh, on account of sex. I don't want to dive too deeply into this event today because I actually will do a full sermon in August on the 100th anniversary of when the 19th Amendment was actually adopted on the anniversary of being ratified by sufficient states. But I do do think it's regularly worth reminding ourselves that in this case women, and really only white women, have had the right to vote in this country for still less than a century. We're not even to that mark yet. For now, I'll limit myself to sharing with you my favorite story from a century ago of smashing the patriarchy. In 1919, the American physician and research scientist, Alice Hamilton, who I really didn't know anything about previously, became the first female faculty member of Harvard University. Harvard did not plan to hire a woman, but they were searching for the world's leading expert in industrial toxicology, and it turned out in that field at that time, no one else was even close to Alice Hamilton, and it turned out she was a woman. The good news is they hired her. The bad news is that her contract required her to, quote, stay away from football games, the faculty club, and commencement. When another person who did major fundraising for Harvard further tried to stop her from doing any public speaking, she wrote back to him, quote, I'm afraid I cannot write to you what you wish to hear from me. Her conscience would not allow her to stay silent because she knew that her work in industrial toxicology could save lives, especially children's lives, and she would not be silent. She kept speaking out. She remained a Harvard professor until her retirement in 1935 at the age of 65. It turns out she then lived another 35 years until 1970. Living more than a century, she died at the age of 101. The year 1919 was also a turning point in the struggle for racial justice in this country in some ways that Bob has already started to share about. It planted many seeds that came to fruition decades later in the Civil Rights Movement. A century ago, many African American soldiers in the US Armed Forces were returning home from fighting overseas to make the world safe for democracy. They returned home and had greater cognitive dissonance than before. They found themselves rightly incensed that how was I fighting for democracy overseas and don't have full access to democracy here in my own country. In the words of W. B. Du Bois, we return from fighting and we return fighting. Make way for democracy, we saved it in France, we will save it in the United States. Indeed, on Armistice Day itself, when the world was celebrating peace, a black man named William Byrd was lynched that day in northern Alabama. He was the 51st black man on record to be lynched that year in addition to three black women. Uh, in In our focal year of 1919, it was to get worse. Uh, During a period known as the Red Summer that included hundreds of deaths across the United States as a result of white supremacist terrorist attacks that occurred in more than three dozen cities. The highest number of fatalities occurred in the rural um, area around Elaine, Arkansas, where an estimated 200 black people and five white people were killed. Although the U.S. House of Representatives responded to that still a little bit too late with a bill to make lynching a federal crime three years later in 1922, none of the eventual 16 anti-lynching bills that passed the House ever made it out of committee in the Senate. It was not until 2005, only 14 years ago, that the United States Senate finally got around to issuing a resolution apologizing to the victims of lynching for its decades of shameful inaction. As we explored last week in our service on how to be anti-racist, much work remains to be done to bring about greater racial equity in this country. But keep in mind how those vital seeds were planted in 1919. Uh, that if we can fight for and experience racial equality overseas, we must demand it in our own country as well. That's actually part of what inspired Rosa Parks' work. It was World War II. Her brother served in World War II, and when she saw her brother come back from World War II and still be treated poorly, uh, that led to her to go to her first NAACP meeting in 1943, where she was, of course, elected president, and the rest is history. Twelve years later, she refused to give up her seat. The fourth and final angle I'd like to share with you is also about how important protests can be in the long run, even if in the moment you feel like a voice crying in the wilderness. Toward the end of World War I, Congress passed the Sedition Act. They passed it to suppress dissent of the war with heavy fines and jail time for discouragement of recruiting or utterances of disloyalty or abusive language about the government, about the contact, co- conduct of the war, the Constitution, even the flag. Uh, to me, that's incredibly dangerous to repest, you know, to say, we're doing this war, and if anybody says anything against it, we'll put you in jail. And they did. We'll fine you. They did. In March 1919, our Unitarian forebear, the Supreme Court Justice, um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., wrote an opinion in support of the Sedition Act. Holmes's words in Schenck versus The United States include some of history's most famous words prohibiting free speech. Uh, And and the eight other justices concurred that opinion was unanimous. A significant number of people were harmed as a result of the the Sedition Act and the Supreme Court's refusal to support free speech, but that is not the end of the story. Over the next few months in discussion with friends and colleagues, Holmes's mind was changed. It also mattered that even over just a matter of months, the sort of fever pitch of the war that can cause people to do things like, I don't know, pass the Patriot Act without reading it, um, uh, sort of lessened, and in November 1919, appropriately, uh, approximately eight months after his previous decision, he wrote the dissent in a court case called Abrams v. The United States that was in defense of free speech. He was joined by his colleague Justice Louis Brandeis. A Supreme Court that only months earlier had been unanimously in defense of the Sedition Act suddenly had two dissenters. At the time, they were voices crying in the wilderness, but when we lean back and take the long view. We know that that dissenting opinion, it was a loser at the time, but it came to chart the legal course for free speech in America. It became one of the most quoted justifications for freedom of expression in the English-speaking world. Today, you may feel sometimes that you are a voice crying in the wilderness, that no one is listening, that the powers that be just don't care, and, and maybe they don't. You may have been recently on the losing sides of some votes, but if you are on the side of the just, and of the true, and of the right, registering your dissent can have powerful reverberations in the long run when you take the long view. There's no guarantee, but your small dissent, our small dissent can sometimes, and does sometimes snowball into an avalanche of change. As the Mexican proverb says, when they tried to bury us, they didn't realize we were seeds. Or as Seamus Haney wrote in The Cure at Troy, his poem in tribute to Nelson Mandela and his work against apartheid. He said, history says don't hope on this side of the grave, but then once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Here in the year 2019, we are divided in many ways as a nation, and there is much talk of building walls. But let us continue to look for the ways that we can build bridges across difference. Don't get me wrong. I want us to leverage power and win. For our values, but let's also look for the ways that we can build bridges, work in coalition to do that. We may not be able to see how to build those bridges today, but where are the places within your life, within your spheres of influence, where you can register your dissent today and in the days and months to come for the way things are, where you can plant a seed of change of how things might be that one day in the long view you may find unexpectedly. That a bridge has been built. And that spirit, please rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together hymn 1023. We're gonna sing it as a round, and Lisa's gonna tell us how.